Hello. Nice to see all of you. Um, I, I guess as uh, invitations go, to be asked to speak at a uh, at a Jewish, a prominent Jewish institution on Christmas Day, that's uh, that's a pretty big venue. So um, I just want to thank Wendy uh, for inviting me here today, and uh, I'm here with like a number of amazing teachers that are in the room. So when you're around people like Joe Septimus, who I've learned a lot from in terms of being able to know how to communicate and teach, and my good friend Aaron Kohler um, and Wendy, it's always uh, an honor to be asked to speak in front of them and uh, and to be speaking in New York uh, in front of all of you where I know, um, you know, uh, people have a lot of things to do. Even even on, even Jews on Christmas morning have a lot of things to do. So uh, I want to thank you all for coming out today for um, for this class. So I was asked to speak uh, a part, as part of a, a larger series on Hasidism, and 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 my my area of of expertise is more on uh, the opposition to Hasidism. So as we all know, any any good idea or any good um, analysis of an idea is always dialectical. We always want to think about the idea and its opposition because it allows for a greater complexity and it's also, that's the way we understand an idea better usually, right? Oftentimes what definition assumes is something outside of the thing that's being analyzed, something other than what the thing is that's being analyzed. So. The, the perspective that I'm going to try to give a little bit today is aside from just an understanding historically of the development and the um, emergence of Hasidut in the modern period, also what was all the fuss about? Why, what, did, what did this movement do to um, upset, to uh, unfurl, to bother, disturb Jewish life? And what, were, what was the backlash against the movement? Um, what was the opposition to it, and why was it so successful, and where did it meet those who pushed back against it? And I want to begin from uh, the 18th century, and by the end of our, our time together today, I want to push it all the way as far as we can into the 19th, and even try to go up to contemporary Jewish life today, and, and, and try to ask the question of, what do we think is important about Hasidism for us in, in this room today? And, and, and what do we find to be, or what might we find to be problematic? Why, uh, why or what have, have many of us taken from it that we find compelling? And what parts of it have we basically, uh, many, let's say, uh, more worldly Jews, if you will, uh, have rejected in it, or have it, or found less compelling about it? Now, to understand what we call Hasidism, when we usually think of the term, we begin with a, a, an understanding of the term in the 18th century uh, with the emergence of a religious revival movement that had a distinct social profile that originated in the second quarter of the 18th century and for the most part has continued in various and different forms up until today. It begins, its major geographic center can be traced back to a certain elite uh, group of scholars in the southeast region of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, particularly in the province of Podolia. Okay. 
Okay, that's where we begin. So the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is partitioned throughout the 18th century with the rest of European powers eating up, gobbling up parts of it to eventually, by, the, uh, uh, by 1795, it being completely dissolved into Austria, into Russia, into various European states that eat, eat it up. But Hasidism emerges in a Polish context. Which is gonna, we're going to see very important. It largely revolves around or begins, most stories about Hasidism, begins with the charismatic figure of Israel ben Eliezer, known as the Baal Shem Tov, who was born in, depending upon which scholar you trust, 1698 or 1700, and he passes away in 1760. This word, Baal Shem Tov, means master of the name. It also could stand in for a doctor. It could be someone who makes amulets. It could be somebody who knows how to play around numerically with the name of God in order to help people who are sick, be able to uh, tell people what their futures are, to be able to offer people guidance. Now, Israel Baal Shem Tov uh, sets up shop around 1740. He's a Kabbalist. He is a miracle worker. He is a, um, a kind of spiritual, charismatic teacher. He sets up shop in 1740 in Medzbij, which is a town owned on the or owned by the Kartorski family. Uh, this was a wealthy Polish magnate family on whose land Jews lived and engaged in commercial relations. Now this is very important to understand because when people used to speak about the Baal Shem Tov, they would largely speak about him just in mythical terms. They would speak about him as a kind of heavenly figure. And what, what's actually been, in, uh, what we found in the last 30, 40 years of scholarship is in fact the Baal Shem Tov was a real historical human being. Not only that, but that he was actually a rabbi who was paid on communal ledgers, his house was tax-free, and he was paid for by a local kihila, a local Jewish governing structure that, that dictated or governed over Jewish life on the Kartorsky uh, uh, estate. Now this is very important, the fact that he was paid for by the community. There are two historiography, philosophies, or way in which people have understood Hasidut. Up until the last 30 years, the depiction of Hasidut, which started with Israel Baal Shem Tov, largely was seen as follows a rebellious movement with socialist leanings that cared for the poor masses that came up in the 18th century against an evil, intrusive, coercive, moneyed, elite, rabbinical and commercial establishment out of the masses, the spiritual life of Hasidism emerged in the figure of Israel Baal Shem Tov, creating a mass movement that swept across Polish lands and tried to, in 
inspire the lowly, downtrodden, poor, uneducated Jews against those who had money and who had power. But what we discovered 40 years ago, it's actually Moshe Rossman, a scholar, he went back and read the Polish sources, he went to the Kartowski family archives, and he discovered, in fact, that Israel Baal Shem Tov, the follow, the founder of this mass revolutionary movement, was, in fact, on the elite, commercial uh, elites, rabbinic elites' books. He was being paid for by the community. This was not some rebel rouser. This was someone who was deeply entrenched in the commercial life and in the wealth and in the elite classes of Polish Jewish life. And this created a radically new understanding of Hasidism. Now, let's take a, a couple steps back now to look at what this term is even, Hasidism. So what did, what did Israel Baal Shem Tov innovate and how was he similar to what came before him? Well, the word Hasid actually is a very, very long and, um, uh, and, and multifaceted his history in Jewish life. It can mean pious one. It can mean righteous one. There's a history of Hasidei Ashkenaz, right? The Hasidim of Ashkenaz in the medieval period that goes back a very long, uh, that has a long, long tradition that could even be followed back to uh, the, the beginnings of the medieval period in Eastern Europe. What was different about Israel Baal Shem Tov was instead of a kind of asceticism and an elitism that was often associated with piety, pious behavior, what Israel Baal Shem Tov did was he changed the tenor of piety into being one, instead of ascetic practices, ones that embraced the flesh, one that embraced materiality, one that embraced carnality, one that embraced uh, this more of this worldliness. So piety did not have to come at the expense of one's physical or material well-being, but could be practiced and adopted in the context of material life. So that's the first transformation. That's the first thing that Israel Baal Shem Tov changes. The second thing that he changes, it's very important, is he tries to take Kabbalistic ideas which are often associated mainly with an elite, often with an elite, and he tries to spiritualize it and popularizes it. Tries to make it more accessible to a larger public. These are the two big differences. Two primary differences. One, a turn away from asceticism. And number two, an attempt to popularize or better yet, make accessible certain spiritual and Kabbalistic ideas. Now, the best, as he is commonly known, leaves us nothing. The, the best example to understand what we know about the best, the Baal Shem Tov, is Jesus. Okay? What do we know about Jesus? Well, well, since it is Christmas, what do we know about Jesus? How do we know about Jesus? 
We know about Jesus through the disciples. We know about Jesus mainly through the apostles. We know about him through the Gospels. We don't have Jesus speaking unmediated. We don't have that. We never have Jesus giving or writing a text. What we have is we have his disciples describing his life. Okay? So... What ends up happening is a lot of questions begin to emerge in the 19th century. Can we find a historic Jesus? What is the historic Jesus? So the same questions have been asked about the Baal Shem Tov. What do we know about the Baal Shem Tov himself? And the answer actually is, until recently, very little. Very little. We now have tax ledgers that people are going through and we can begin to understand a little bit more about his position in society. But up until the last 30 years, what we basically had was around three different works or so, three or four different works, in which statements attributed to the Baal Shem Tov have been expressed. Most famously, there's a work called Shivchei Habesht, in praise of the Baal Shem Tov, which is a work that was compiled in 1795, by Dov Linitz, and wasn't published until 1814, 1815 in Kapust. That's the primary document, collection of his various statements. Another collection we have is a, a text, uh, Toldot Yaakov Yosef, uh, which was another text that, uh, that compiled statements by the Baal Shem Tov, also printed at the end of the 18th century. Another, of course, is a Igeret HaKodesh, uh, uh, written by, or produced, or disseminated by Gershon of Kitev, in which the Baal Shem Tov supposedly wrote to those in uh, Israel. We only have three documents, and all three of them have been... Uh, have been um, subject to various editing processes, transmissional processes that make all of them highly, highly suspect in terms of being able to use in a reliable sense to figure out who was the Baal Shem Tov. So when we speak about the Baal Shem Tov, just like when we would speak about Jesus, right, we have to look at his disciples to get a better sense of how they saw him, how they understood him, and how they ended up disseminating his ideas. Now, the reason why the Baal Shem Tov's disciples are so important is that what makes the Baal Shem Tov different than all other charismatic figures from, say, the beginning of the medieval period up until the 18th century is the Baal Shem Tov and Hasidism are the first to actually construct a movement that stands the test of time. There is a movement. If you think of, let's say, Jewish life from, say, the 14th century, 13th century, let's say 14th, to the, to the 18th century, can you tell me another movement? You'll think of one. You'll think of one. But after that one, you'll say, which that one, can you think of another movement that emerges in Jewish life? What's another movement? So you can think of Sabbatianism, right? But Sabbatianism, unlike Hasidism, fails. Fails for numerous reasons, but it fails. What's unique about Hasidism is that it succeeds. It garners a strong following. And it ends up being able to uh, control resources. 
So why does it succeed? How does it succeed? Now, first of all, just to give you a little context, people always say Hasidism as opposed to enlightenment. Well, guess when the reform movement begins to emerge? Guess when enlightenment begins to emerge? Guess when Jewish denominations begin to emerge? Now, those begin to emerge in Western Europe. Hasidism begins in Eastern Europe. They both begin at the exact same time. And they both begin against the backdrop of one major, major significant transformation in Jewish life. Does everybody know the most important social and political transformation that happens to Jewish life at the end of the 18th century? What? That, that, that's Jewish for France. I'm talking, we'll talk now for the rest. That's good though, France. Is, but you know what? It's even connected to France. It's connected to France. Because when we look back to um, Clermont Tonnerre's famous statement, to the Jews nothing, to the Jew everything, what he's saying there is the same thing that happens in 1764 in Poland and it happens in Germany as well, which is Jews lose their coercive power to govern over their respective communities. You have the, you have the uh, uh, falling of the Kihila system, of uh, the central governing system of Jewish life. Once that institution falls and states say, these emerging states say, you have to pay taxes to me, not to some local elite or rabbinic or lay group, then what that does is it creates space for people to express themselves religiously as they see fit. If you have one structure in town, they're going to want to consolidate forces around one synagogue. The minute you no longer have a Jewish governing structure, but rather the police and the state are what governs over Jewish life, it makes possible the emergence of various Jewish ideological expressions. In Western Europe, that's called Reform and Conservative Judaism. In Eastern Europe, that's called Hasidism, Mitnagdism, and Maskilism, and Jewish Enlightenment. Okay? Now, when we look at Eastern Europe and we begin to understand the, Baal, the effects of the Baal Shem Tov students, we have to recognize that they're able to succeed and set up their own local organizations, own local synagogues, because there is a weakening of Jewish coercive power. That weakening makes it possible for people to, to, to readdress or to push funds in their own private directions as they see fit, which gives rise to various com competing religious institutions and groups. Okay? Now, where does Hasidism spread and where doesn't it spread? Hasidism spreads into Congress Poland, it spreads into Galicia, it spreads into parts of Ukraine, it spreads into parts of Hungary, the Unterland, and it spreads into parts of Romania. Where doesn't it spread? Where does it have pushback? So, places like Siberia, it doesn't. It doesn't in certain regions of Hungary. It doesn't in Bohemia, Moravia. And it doesn't, or it somewhat does, but in a very, very, the place where the greatest amount of conflict happens between Hasidism and its opponents is where? Lithuania. Lithuania. 
Okay, so if you think about how the movement progresses, it progresses from underneath, from Poland, begins to make its way up. It's going to then hit Lithuania as it's moving up, and boom, right there we begin to have conflict. Okay, we begin to have conflict. Now, that conflict begins to happen, most notably, in the northwestern provinces of Lithuania, in the Vilna and Grodno Gubernias, where you begin to have uh, a conflict between these Hasidic leaders and between the establishment, or what's known to be establishment, uh, lay-led and rabbinic elites. Now, let's first understand, before we understand what the, what the conflict's going to be, let's understand how it spreads. So first it spreads we have to look at the demography a little bit. Age. There's, at the end of the 18th century, there is a huge birth rate um, shift that happens in Jewish life. There begins to be a lot of Jews being born and infant mortality rates begin to go down. Infant mortality rates begin to go down and Jews are having more and more children, more than even other pop populations around them. So you are having, by the end of the 18th century, large, large sector of the population is very young. They're young, and they're beginning also to, uh, they're beginning to also recognize uh, that they don't have as many job opportunities, because you have increased amounts of economic competition that are going on, because you have uh, increased amounts of youth, and you have a limited job market. Right? Jews are primarily only allowed to engage in mercantile activity. They're not allowed to, let's say, open up a shop somewhere. Um, and they're not allowed access into universities, for the most part. In Italy, some can go. Um, and what you basically have is you begin to have some greater economic, uh, some economic competition among the youth, but you have a whole sector of a youthful population emerging. So Hasidism appeals to that sector, it will speak in, it will speak in, um, in sexual metaphors. How are you going to reach young people? What, what's the best way to reach an 18-year-old? The best way to reach an 18-year-old is to speak in sexualized metaphors. You speak to a 67-year-old in sexualized metaphors, less compelling than speaking to an 18-year-old. You speak to a 70-year-old in economic metaphors, they listen. You speak to a 16, an 18, a 20-year-old in sexual metaphors, they're going to listen. And we're going to see a lot of sexual metaphors that are going to be used. They're also going to end up spreading themselves through print. This is print begins to emerge, paper begins to get much cheaper, and print becomes a way in which Hasidism spreads itself. So Elimelech Lejeans, Todot Yaakov Yosef, they begin to produce popularized literature. You have to think, 19th century, that's when people begin to get bookshelves in their homes. And a whole middle-brow literature ends up being produced by Hasidim that can appeal not only to very learned elites, but can appeal to, let's say, an 18-year-old who could read Yiddish or who could read a little bit of English, uh, a little bit of, of Hebrew, but cannot necessarily, what we would call, make a laning on a piece of shah, right? So there'll be a, a kind of publishing of middle-brow literature. The third is the idea of a shtibl. 
a shtibel. What's a shtibel? So a shtibel is a place that combines both the spiritual and material together. It'll be a place in which all of a sudden people can sleep if they need to. The Rebbe will live there. There'll be also a, uh, a place that people can eat. Unless you were a top-tier elite, you shouldn't be eating inside a Beit Midrash, a house of study, or a house of prayer. And there were certainly exceptions to that rule. But the shtibel established that that wasn't a rule anymore. So you could have all of your life, all of your cultural life being celebrated, being enjoyed, uh, happening in this shtibel. The shtibel only is allowed to emerge if you don't also, if you have a freeing up of residential rights, which can only happen if you also no longer have Jews being in governing structures over those communities. So all these things end up emerging together. Print, the new institution of a shtibel, which is both prayer, study, culture together, and, of course, uh, the, the idea of uh, appealing to a youthful population, to a kind of uh, youthful population. So these were things that, that allowed Hasidism to spread. Now, in 1772, Hasidism begins to spread into the town of Brody, and the, uh, economic, the, the economic leadership, the elite, come out against it. It gets the Vilna Kihila, it goes to Vilna, which is a large epicenter of Jewish life in Lithuania. When we say large in the 18th century, we're talking roughly around 4,000 inhabitants. We're talking around 4,000 Jewish inhabitants. The town is made around 10,000 inhabitants. Vilna is around 4,000 Jewish inhabitants. 1772 is the first act of excommunication. This is then followed in Vilna by in 1781 and then in 1796. These are the three major acts of excommunication. These acts of excommunication get the imprimatur, it gets the stamp of Elijah of Vilna, the Gon of Vilna, who is a towering intellectual in, uh, in Lithuanian Jewish life. And, is that better? Towering intellectual figure of, of, eight, of 18th century Lithuanian Jewish life. The Vilna Gon signs on to these excommunications, which immediately gives them a very serious, not only economic strength, but also a very serious intellectual strength. Now, what's the problem with Hasidism that they had? Okay. There's four major, four major issues that I think, at least four. We're going to look at them. The first is they start raising, it's about five, let's say five. The first major one that's very, very simple that appears everywhere, they're just like the Sabatians. They're just like Jacob Frank, who was another kind of antinomian movement. And of course we all know where, Jake, where uh, Sabatianism and Jacob Frank ends in. It ends in conversion. It ends in great disappointment. It ends in tragedy. So the first is, this is no different than Sabatianism and Frankism. Okay? The second which they touch on is their problems and the way in which they're praying. 
They don't like prayer. Now remember, this is a very regimented society. Most of these towns have only one synagogue. Everybody prays at the same place. Now these Hasidim are moving in, they're doing somersaults when they're praying. What does that mean? They're doing somersaults. They're standing on their head. They're engaged in all kinds of ecstatic prayer. So prayer becomes a site of anxiety. The order that normally dictates most prayer sessions are now being overturned. The second is study, that they have diminished the role of study and learning in Jewish life. By the way, each one of these things is going to stand in for something else. They're not just uh, abstract ideas. They have concrete material uh, and political significance, each one of them. We'll get up to it. Second is study. All of a sudden, study is no longer important. The third is in rituals. These group of people do or practice or engaged in diminishing certain rituals in Jewish life. And they have ended up adopting all kinds of other customs that weren't important. The fourth, and this is related back to the issue of the rituals, is the slaughter. All of a sudden, Hasidim would come into town, they would say, your knives, no good. Knives are no good. We need sharper and smoother knives. All the meat is treif. You're all eating treif meat. No butcher. Now all these things, they kind of, they sound very abstract. But now let's understand what they economically and politically translate into. We'll work back. Butcher. There are two places of revenue where tax monies are collected for local kihilot, local governing structures. One, right, if you, you have to think about this. Nothing happens staying like less the lights get turned on, right? So... 18th century, how do lights get turned on? Candles. There's a candle tax. Whenever you went to buy candles, that's where a community would tax you. They knew everybody had to have candles. You could, you could get, and, and things, you have to go somewhere to get candles. Because you could get wood out in the forest to go, but you need a candle that takes somebody who has a goose fat. That's usually how candles were made. And you would there pay a tax. That tax money would come back to the community. The second, which everybody needed, this is before, not that many people were vegetarians, was on meat. Your meat tax, the karobka tax. Every single person would have to, when they buy meat, that's where they would pay their, also their communal tax. Now, if you say that you don't respect this butcher, you're not just saying, <laughs> I don't like this guy. You're saying, whole new tax system. So when you have a Hasidic person who comes in and starts being butcher, all of a sudden tax monies get shifted in a whole new direction. And if you no longer have the right to coerce people, to force them to give taxes to another show, or we could call it what we call today membership dues. If you don't want to pay your membership dues there, guess what? The only way, only way membership dues get forced to get paid in one direction is if there is a policeman, or what they used to have in Kilot, a Rodef Nela, which was kind of what we would call today uh, a goon of sorts. A goon. And that's why, by the way, the whole Aguna thing, just this, when people say, oh, it was the good old days. No, it wasn't the, the whole point was the good old days, there was a police force. 
It wasn't a goon. It was a, this was the police force. So if there was a problem in the system, the police went and solved the problem. There isn't like, oh, we're going to go hire a hitman on some guy. No, the reason why there wasn't problems in the system was if there was a problem, there was a police force to take care of it. There was a thing called the Rodeth Mela. Let me, I'm just going to finish up and then we're going to have some questions. So you had a Karobka tax. The Karobka tax was the way in which tax money is collected. You have a different slaughter, whole new tax system. Let's go back to study. What does it mean to not like study, to diminish study? It means a whole transformation of who your elite is. In other words, no longer is your elite or what you most privilege or where monies should go to those who learn. But why should monies be going to that person? And finally, to prayer. What is prayer? What prayer means, and we're going to see, is what does it mean that every single person can all of a sudden begin to have a unia mystica. Every single person can have a direct line to God. And that, not just that, they don't have to have it directly in a synagogue. They could have it out in the woods. They could have it doing somersaults. They could have it doing uh, um, uh, uh, jumping around. They could have it meditating. So you now no longer need the whole infrastructure of Jewish communal life which was centered around prayer. So what this is, is what it translates into is a whole social and political transformation. Now the great irony is, this doesn't mean that they wanted to get rid of existing Jewish life. It means they wanted to enthrone and empower a different elite based on a different set of values. So the first wave of scholarship that came out on Hasidism was, oh, it was all re- revolutionary, rebellious. No, it was rebellious and revolutionary, but it wanted to also enthrone a different kind of structure. Now, what I compiled for you is a few set of texts here, which we're going to learn today, which is going to describe three stages. The first is going to describe, now when you start from texts, you're going to see here, uh, not Elijah Vilna, I want you to start from texts two, Israel Baal Shem Tov in a circle, and then you'll go back to one. And then you'll go to three. And then you'll go to three. And then you'll go to four. Now, what I've tried to compile here, and we'll go through them quickly, what they're about, is a, a quick history of a broad overview of the first fights in Hasidism, how that, um, what happened then throughout the 18th century, I mean into the 19th century, and then why Hasidism ends up at some point in Eastern Europe giving way or losing to what would end up becoming Jewish socialism and, of course, uh, to Zionism, which become the major ways that Jews identify by the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. Either you're Bundist or you're Zionist. So how does, what's Hasidism's high point? Then when does it recede? And then how does it emerge simply not just as a social and political force, but how does it emerge as simply a religious or a meaning-making religious or spiritual expression? Because some of us today take different parts of it, right? And we're going to get into what that means. But what I've done is I've selected a few sources here that will try to sketch some of that out for you. So first I just want to give you a little background on the sources. Then you're going to ask some questions on what I just said. 
Then we're going to learn, then we're going to come back, and we're going to then take it a little bit further into the high point, the problems of Hasidism, and how it begins to unravel. So, the text you have in front of you, just to let, give you a little bit of an overview here, um, is you'll see you have here a text from Israel Baal Shem Tov and his circle. So, the, the first text you have here is from Kalmanus uh, Kalman Epstein, a work called Ma'or Vashemesh. You can sometimes find it in some versions of Mikraot Gedolot of uh, the Bible. Um, it was a commentary on the Bible by a student of Elimelech of Lezhinsk. Um, and he's also a student of, uh, of the Magid of Mezrich. And this is a, 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 a commentary, a Hasidic commentary, uh, one which is more indicative of Polish Hasidism. He was based in Krakow. Um, and uh, it's a text that we'll talk about here, about Torah study and the problems of Torah study. The second text I have for you is, two texts are from the Magid of Mezrich, who was a primary disciple of Israel Baal Shem Tov. And the fourth and fifth texts here are from Tzavat HaRivash, which is a compilation of various statements from supposedly the Baal Shem Tov, also from uh, other various Hasidic uh, fig- figures. So this will give you a little bit of a background about some of the more radical elements of Hasidism, ones that specifically... Mitnagdim, their opponents, took issue with. So if you'll turn now back to page one, I selected just two or three sources here from Elijah of Vilna, the Goan of Vilna, who writes, this is what we're going to look at here, our first is commentary to Mishlei, to the book of Proverbs, and then to, uh, to uh, Sefer Yitzira, mystical work that uh, he wrote a commentary on. Um, it's very important to note, in his writings, the Gona of Vilna doesn't ever spe- specify Hasidism. He himself is giving his own world view. So your job is going to be, when you look at these sources, to be trying to compare them yourself. Saying, okay, if I believe, it's not just there was a group called Hasidim, and then there was this opponent called the Mitnagdim. The Mitnagdim, by the way, very rarely ever used the word Mitnagdim to describe themselves. Very rarely, they found one or two citations of it in, in some of their own writing. Chaim of Elijah certainly does never uses the Gon's disciple, never uses that term. The Gon of Vilna never uses that term. They see themselves as also offering their own distinct worldview. So, what you're going to do is you're going to be focusing, trying to figure out what's the worldview that Elijah Vilna is putting forward, what's the worldview that these Hasidic masters are putting forward. And how do they construct different understandings of what Jewish identity is about? Okay? The third text that I have for you, and we're gonna, I'm going to read it out in full when you come back, is a work by a woman named Sarah Foner. Okay, Sarah Foner um, is the first woman Hebrew novelist. She wrote the first Hebrew novel by a woman in 1880. She is a descendant of the Gon of Vilna. She's a descendant of the Gon of Vilna. She grew up, her father was a, uh, a prominent uh, 
a prominent uh, uh, disciple of Chaim of Elijah from the Velazhin Yeshiva. Not, not Chaim, but Yitzchak of Elijah from the Velazhin Yeshiva. Um, now Mencken's very interesting. She was observant her whole life. Her, her first husband, who was religious, ended up running off with another woman. She remained religious her whole life, but she married a man who wasn't. And she, they say, wore talit. So the day she died, she died actually in America. She came over from Europe to London, then to America. And she's going to describe here, you're going to see uh, uh, the fights that emerged in the town of Dvinsk in the 1850s, 1860s between Hasidim and Mitnagdin. Now, it's, it's important to know, Dvinsk was always a very famous, hot, there was a famous fight that happened in the 1890s and uh, in, in Devinsk between Hasidim and Mitnagdi, most famously between Mayor Simcha Hakoin of Devinsk, the Or Sameach, and Yosef Rosen, known as the Rugged Shover. And I, I know, let me put it this way, I know people who know people who know people who remember that fight in the streets of Devinsk, and they say the two sides would walk on op- opposite sides of the street. They would not talk to each other. This is before that fight happens, and you can already begin to see the effects of this fight in people's kitchens. In people's kitchens and in people's economic decisions. So what Sarah Foner does is she's going to discor- take all those ideas from Hasidism and Mitnagdism and talk about how it affected people at the dinner table, where it mattered most. And this is very, very important. Because you can't understand Zionism and you can't understand Bundism without understanding the kitchen table that Sarah Foner is describing here. It's very important. This is the key. This is the, prob- this is the deep problem of Hasidism, is what ends up happening at this, this dinner table. Finally, I have two sources that I brought that are taken, we'll, we'll talk about who they are for a minute. One is taken from a man named Ephraim Dinard. Ephraim Dinard set up in America all the major libraries in America, Jewish libraries, Library of Congress, Harvard Library, HUC. These are all Ephraim Dinard's creations. He sets up the libraries in America. He was uh, transported. He originally grew up in the town of Roizeni in the area known as Zamut in uh, Lita, and was a bookseller in that area. Um, and he was actually the, the point person for Peretz Molenskin's Hashacha. And Dinard is a book person, so he describes the bookish culture of Lita. Now, Dinard himself is a Fabrentische capitalist, Zionist, and Mitnagid till the day he dies. And he is a, I, so I took a, 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 a description of how he describes what is a typical Shabbat in Lithuania look like uh, as a mitnagi. Next to him, I have another text that I've compiled from you from a man named uh, Yecheskel Kotik, which is translated here by David Asaf. And this is also from his own zikronot, his own memoirs. And Kotik uh, describes going up in the town of Kamenitz, and he describes living in that town and what it was like on Shabbat. His father uh, was a chassid. He himself ends up becoming a mitnagid later in life. But he grows up as a chassid. And he describes what it was like as a chassid to observe Shabbat. And these two texts will explain to you what does it feel? How does it feel different? 
to be a, to live as a chassid or to live as a mitnagid? How does that create different kinds of cultural experiences? Okay, so these are the texts that I've assembled, and I want you to you know learn them bechavruta. But before we break up, bechavruta is a collaborative learning to all of you, you know, here I'm sure, Trisha, you all have a sense of what, what that is. If you don't, it means to gather together in groups and to debate and study and uh, try to figure out what's going on in them and, and, and interpret them for yourselves. But if there's any, before we break, I want to first have some questions now on some of the things that I talked about. And if they're too far afield, I'll say, hey, we'll wait and we'll take that up then in the larger session. But go ahead. Yes. That's a good question. That's a very good question. Couldn't you just buy the candles from Gentiles? Oh, that's interesting. I have to think about that. Why couldn't you just buy the candles from Gentiles? I have to think about that. That's good. I, I never thought about what, what they, why they wouldn't do that. It's denigrating study. You have less, you have less than candles. <laughs> but everybody, no, who, wants to, who wants to sit in a room at night on Friday... You know, and Friday night at five o'clock, with there being no light on, I mean, everyone wants some light. <laughs> you know, yes. Why? Oh, maybe. It could be. It could be. It could be that. Because of the goose fat, it could be. Very well, could be. Yeah, that, that's a good point. That could be, very well could be. Yes? Did they really, were they really able to eat that much meat in those days? Well, I don't know if it was a, I don't know if it was such a, I mean, I think, I, I think we, we, I mean, I don't, I, I don't have exact numbers on meat consumption. But I'm pretty sure enough from what I've seen, you know, I'm thinking to myself of a number of different texts in my mind or documents. People were eating chickens and were eating meat every, every week. How much is a good question, but I don't... I, 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 remember, there is... Wait one second. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Let, let's get, let's get. By the 19th century, well, you're going to read, by mid-19th century, there is a crisis, and people don't have food. By the 18, in the 18th century, there isn't an economic crisis. People have, people, I don't, there's not an economic crisis in the end of the 18th century. 19th century, 18, 1860s, 1870s, we'll read, there is a crisis. Who knows what they have at that point? There are famines. Absolutely, there are famines. But that's not everyone. That's not week in, week out. Well, you, some well, a lot of they played a lot with some. They played a lot with minion also, right? They played a lot with that. That they put a greater emphasis upon preparation by oneself before a minion. But that's what I think I was trying to get at. The first people who described, I'll give you a backup. Someone like Simon Dubnov. Simon Dubnov was the first great social historian of Jewish history, and he begins writing about Jewish history in the 1880s and 1890s. He himself was a socialist, had certain socialist leanings. And 
he identified the beginning of socialism even, even in Hasidism. So what he did was he divided Hasidism up into two separate periods. One was from the 18th century into the beginning of the 19th century, which was its origins, which he liked, which were radically antinomian, which he said exactly what you said. People were just going off into the woods, doing their things. And then afterwards, he described the period what he called tzaddikism, which were tzaddikim, rebbe's, set up shop, created infrastructure, um, demanded money, demanded that people worship them, and moved away from uh, those kinds of original socialist ideals and antinomian ideals and antinormative ideals. Now what recent scholarship went and showed is that's a wrong picture because even Israel Baal Shem Tov was on the books. He himself was taking money from the elites. So it was never as antinomian as it was originally portrayed. But it was revolutionary in the sense that it wanted to enthrone or it wanted to establish a new or a different political elite. Someone who knew about your family, someone who could give you business advice, somebody who could counsel you, and somebody who could um, teach you, not just somebody who sat in a Beit Midrash and spoke to a learned elite. Okay, any, yes? Well, Yeah, so let me give... So yeah, so let me give a couple uh, examples for that. Right, so let me give a couple... Exa- let me give it an example or two. Um, so so she, she wanted to know who exactly was it who was sleeping in Stiebel's? Was it families? Was it Wayfarers? Was it uh, Bachrim? Who was there? Um, so first of all, it was a center for Jewish life in the various communities. So if you set up shop, people would come, as we're going to see, people would come Friday night, or people would come Sudash Lishit for the third meal on Sabbath, and they would all congregate there and eat there with the Rebbe. The Rebbe certainly slept right next to the Shtibel. So he, 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 was, he was part of that. He was living, living right in it. Um, now, in terms of who would come there? Well, let's take the Lubavitch court, for example. So the Lubavitch court would have visitors that were constantly coming in from afar. And so there developed a whole kind of, uh, a whole system in which people would come, they would stay with certain Hasidim, but at the beginning it was actually much more tovavohu. Uh, and there were people who would be sleeping on benches and, and people who would be bothering the Rebbe, Schneer Zalman, at all hours of the day. And eventually what ended up getting created was one of the reasons why he wrote the Tanya was so that he, he didn't have to see people all the time. He could give out this book and expand his reach across a larger terrain 
and put less emphasis on the court itself. But there would be, occasionally there would be travelers that of course would have to sometimes sleep over. But the most important thing was that it was day in, day out by the communities that were present that they could be coming there not just to pray, not just to learn, but also to schmooze, to talk, to and to eat and a social center, a social center, which the synagogue was not supposed to ideally be, or only for the elite was it supposed to be that. Yes, one more. Right. Yes. Well, when we deal with Hasidic theology, when we deal with Hasidic, Hasidic theology, is, has a lot of different, a lot of different. There are a lot of different views on this within the broad terrain of Hasidism. If we say Lubavitch, I actually think that that reading of of Chabad Hasidism definitely has sources in Chabad Hasidut. The Messianic in Chabad Hasidut can play in multiple directions. The most amazing thing about Chabad Hasid, and here, you know, if any of you want to spend a lot of time, you have to spend a lot of time doing it. The most brilliant book to be written in Jewish thought in God knows how many years in my mind is Elliot Wolfson's work on uh, Schneer's, is on, on Chabad Hasidut, by far. Um, and what he shows there, one of the things that he shows, and I'm oversimplifying, in other words, very complex uh, work, is that deep within Chabad Hasidut, it always is functioning back and forth between Messianic and non-Messianic moments. And those two foci, the Messianic and the non-Messianic, are constantly going back and forth. And the same way in which the movement at one point was radically anti-Messianic, the most anti-Messianic of any movement, that's why they were famously the most anti-Zionist, is the same DNA theologically that they have to flip back in the other direction and then say something is messianic. So in Chabad Hasidut, that is there. Absolutely, that's there in different forms, but it's, I think it's there. But that's a different question. That's a little bit far afield. Let's, um, let's not go down that route yet today. Um, and let's break now so that everyone can start studying some of these texts together. We can ask So, okay. So I'm I'm thinking that um, I'm going to go over some of these sources now and try to get a sense of what all the fuss is about um, from the first two sections. So I'm going to pose a couple questions so we could get a sense I could hear what you guys are thinking um, and we could understand these a little bit better together and 
If you have questions, you could ask them and we'll, we'll move forward. I'll speak. If you've got questions, raise your hand and I'll try to be responsive. So the first question I have for all of you is, well, what do we think, what do we think is being expressed? First, let's look. We'll, we'll look at this Elijah Vilna since you have it in front of you. What do you think he is expressing is the central defining feature of Jewish life? Torah study. Okay. Now, what is the kind of philosophical principle behind that? He's got a, a philosophical principle that's behind the idea of Torah study being the central defining feature of Jewish life. What Can someone explain what that or how that philosophical principle is developed? Does anyone have a clear enough sense of it to be able to articulate it at this point? Yes. Okay, we're going to go stick. I want to stick with the Vilna Gone himself. I gave you guys two pa three passages to read here. I'm focusing on the third passage right now. Can anybody articulate what's being said in the third passage? Specifically. Because that's where he's going to develop it philosophically. You have it? Go for it. Okay, let's, that's good. Okay, this is, he compares, he compares the relationship of God to, to two people using a kind of, it's, it's not so, so much as, it partially is a sexual metaphor, but it's also a contract. Right, both of them. So on one end there is a kind of contract, there's a sexual metaphor. What else is going on there? So God is relational. First of all, he's understanding God relationally. Like, yes. Okay, that's good. First point. Yes. There we go. Okay, now why is it an impossible relationship? And why maybe is every, you know, what's going to be interesting is that this aspect in the Vilnagon will be explained further by Chaim of Elushin and then taken up philosophically by Emmanuel Levinas, who will call himself a disciple of Chaim of Elushin and the Vilnagon. So what does it mean in an impossible relationship? What, is, what are you pointing to with that? It's, yeah, you have an it, yeah. Yes. 
You can never really know what's going on inside another person. Or oneself necessarily. So how do we, so what he says is how, there are people that try to do that, right? The people who try to do that are metaphysicians who are trying to actually understand who, what is God really? And what the Vilna Gon says is, you can't understand anybody really. But there are ways that we, there are ways that we come to understand other people. So one of them is a person gives us or something is created by that person that they transferred to us. And through that object, through that thing, we can better understand who that person is. So here what he says is that God, he uses the image also, not just of a, of a relationship between a man and a woman, but he also uses the image of, or the metaphor of a contract or a covenant of circumcision, where God makes the Torah, it's kind of ironic, he makes Torah into a foreskin. The Torah is like an orla here, uh, that which is kind of left over from circumcision and is given to the Jewish people. And the only way the Jewish people can ever really understand God is mediated through that object called the Torah. That's the way in which they relate. So you never can know the thing in itself. You never can fully grasp or know the other. The other always remains other. And the only way to encounter that other is through this this thing called Torah. Okay? Yes, it's a shot at Rambam. Absolutely, it's a shot at Rambam. It's a shot at, at Aristotle as well. So, yes? Is it a bi-directional That's interesting. There's certainly Midrashic statements like that, that God, there's no show unless he's got somebody listening to him. That's right. He also, his greatness is dependent also upon, right. Okay, so what gets, what gets privileged here? What's the only way you can come to have a spiritual relationship is actually through this mediating body of literature or knowledge that empowers certain groups of people. It forces one to say that any time you're going to have a divine experience, it runs through this thing called Torah, where there is a distinct higher social hierarchy that is based upon knowledge. Now, when we flip over to the Hasid, now what, what else, what gets diminished here? There's a few things that get diminished. Prayer gets diminished, and even rituals get diminished. And even mitzvot get diminished here. So there's a hierarchy. So let's say I do 613 mitzvot. I'm a great Jew. I do everything I'm supposed to do. It's like, all right, whatever. You give me a third, a fourth tier on a ladder. You're not number one. Like, you could do all the mitzvot in the world, but that doesn't mean, that means something. It's just not what it's all about for him. Okay? Prayer also. Prayer is... What does prayer now mean? This is a very good question. What does it mean to pray if you can't really speak to God? What does that mean? This is a point that Levinas will, will pick up. He has a, a, a piece called Prayer Without Demand, which is 
based on Chaim of Elijah's writings, uh, where he's going to say that prayer for for Mitnagid is simply being appreciative of the holding up of the world. Bakasha, prayers that beseech are are pushed down or reinterpreted, and everything is shevach v'hoda. Everything is praising and thanking. You're, you're, you don't have the ability to ask for something. Give me this. Give me that. You don't know God well enough to even know what you should be or can't be having. Your job is not to ask. You don't have that kind of relationship. All you can do is you can appreciate and you can praise what you've been given. Now flip on over to the Hasidic sources. What's being put forward there? What? Prayer. Not just prayer. Direct path in prayer. Emotion. Right. And also relationship. You have real sex. You have sex with God. Look, prayer is like intercourse. There's none of this like, there's nothing in between the man and the woman. It's like divine intercourse, right? The beginning, there are emotions. Similarly, there are emotions in prayer. Then later on, one hits a, a, a peak and one can stand without motion, attached to divine presence with a powerful bond. As a result of the motions alone, one can attain great motivation. So you actually have, you consummate the relationship. It's a consummation of the relationship. With the Vilna Gaon, there's no consummation of a relationship at all. So here, prayer, once there's something that's profoundly different relationally. Here, one can have a direct relationship and therefore, what gets then put front and center as a defining element of religious life? It's not study. It's not some kind of mediating body. It's the actual relational moment directly with God, which is prayer. Yes? Well, of course, some of it is. Sure. So, and some of, there's a book out just right now on Hasidism and Christianity. Uh, Shaul Magi just wrote a book on the two things, trying to talk about the way in which the tzaddik is also a reincarnational figure. The way in which Jesus can become Christ. The way in which the tzaddik ends up adopting and having certain divine elements to him. But you're not talking. You're talking. So this is, the, if, you be, if, I, if you saw when I spoke about this, this is also the middle of the 18th century. It's a revivalist moment in European life. It's a question? No, question? Yeah. Okay, that's a great, great question. A great question. There's a tension also in Hasidic thought. And this comes out of the Magid's teachings. You got it right. For the Magid, because God is so part of the world, the world turns into absolute nothingness. In other words, he encompasses, he turns 
so to understand God, you have to make yourself into absolutely nothing. There's certain elements that go into that as well. That's cer- certainly there. And then there's another side that goes radically more materialist and says, well, since God is in everything, then you need to throw yourself into everything. Um, so it, 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 it functions actually in both ways. The issue of bitul hayesh, the, the idea of the only way to come to God is when you are absolutely nothing and have totally disappeared versus coming to God in a state in which every you are present in everything that is going on. Yes? Well, there's a lot. Look, there's a lot psychologically we could say about all of these different. What does it mean that the Vilna Gon can't talk to people? He just can only relate to them through through a mediating body. What does that psychologically say about him? Um, we could also look at certain Hasidic sources which talk about how man is nothing at all, or man is everything, or materiality is all just, it's all just, you know, uh, a facade, right, to godliness versus, so we can always psychologically reduce or look at them through a psychological prism. I think all of them could be looked at in that way. Certainly Schneer Zamvliadi really gets into issues of psychology and the ego and the way the ego functions. I've decided not to go down that route today, but you could psychologically, of course, analyze this in, very, in a very rich way as well about these people. Yes? Uh, the, the, the sexual metaphors that we see here, to what extent are they new, and to what extent are they drawing on the existing mystical literature and the commentaries on biblical literature? So the, well, there is very little that is new here in terms of the sexual metaphors. It's all over Kabbalistic literature. Certainly, if you look at Maimonides, you look at quote-unquote, and I really mean it quote-unquote because I don't really know, traditional Jewish sources, they tend not to consummate relationships. You dance around God in the Song of Songs, you kiss, you make out, you fondle, you pet, uh, you hook up. But you don't have full-on sex in those... And that's why they're the traditional sources, because, you know, uh, they're kind of Victorian prim, if you will. But, you know, Kabbalistic sources, all this stuff goes on in much more wild ways, much more wild ways. Um, Again, you could read some of Elliot Wolfson's earlier works, um, which was some people have described as... um, Highly sexually charged metaphors. What's new here is this. Is that this is being targeted to a mass audience. <laughs> it's not just an elite that gets to play this game. Or gets to be involved relationally. But it's something that everybody should be involved. It's a mass movement. right? So that's profoundly different than a few people being able to say, yeah, I know 
what God really wants from me. Now, that scares the daylights out of the establishment, right? If you look at the history, let's say, of, of, of Christian socialism, so much of the history of Christian socialism is based around the claim that I know what God really wants. Right? And it decenters. We could look back in the Talmud and see the kind of decentering or the the um, the political revolutionary implications to saying, I know what's in heaven. So what happens in Hasidism, what's different is, is when you say you could have a direct relationship with God, that opens up all kinds of various political possibilities that are being acted out on in different ways. So these are traditional sources, but being marshaled in a very different way for a mass appeal and for a social movement. Yes? It seems at least on the surface to be um, a very based and like primal mode of functioning in terms of just like riding the winds of the spirit. Is there, is, does reason play no role in the Baal Shem Tov philosophy? Okay, so the Baal Shem Tov we don't, Again, let's separate. Baal Shem Tov, we don't really know what the philosophy is, if there was even a philosophy. We know that there was a worldview. There were things he emphasized. Let's take Chabad, though. Chabad, which is... Okay. As a general rule, what distinguishes Chabad from everybody else is Chabad is systematic. It's systematic, and, I mean, you read Schneir Zalman of Liadi. You read Chabad Hasidut. This is... Everything... I mean, I, the Vilna Gon students do not compare to what the McNaggad tradition, until you have certain Musarniks, doesn't compare in terms of the depth of Chabad and the brilliance of, uh, of Chabad's thought. And there, you have a real systemization that tries to justify it also rationally. It, that does try to justify it in rational terms. Um, the others will try to move into the irrational and they'll embrace the irrational. So Nachman Abratzov is going to embrace uh, the irrational side. And others are going to be less systematic. So there'll be elements of reason in there. But it won't be systematic. Chabad begins to systematize and tries to ask the question of how do I rationally understand or justify what it means to have God's presence in this world. What does it mean? What are the implications of I can have a direct relationship to God through this chair? What are the implications of that philosophically? And that's what they're, that's what they're trying to work out. But does bringing reason into the dialectic, does that kind of create a barrier between man and the relationship that could have been had through this pure ecstasy? It does, but you get other things. See, so if you're living in Lithuania like Schneer Zambliadi and he's trying to get the students of the Gona Vilna to buy into what he's doing, who makes, a sh- for example, so who makes, you know, we tend to make fun of Chaba- uh, the Hasidism as being antinomian, but it was Schneer Zambliadi who writes a Shulchan Aruch. He's actually the most. We tend to say, oh, they're just spiritualists or... But it's Shneir Zamliali that writes the Tanya, which is, which is trying to make a rational argument. Now, he loses some, some followers. People like Avram of uh, Kalisk and all kinds of other Hasidic groups say, what on earth are you doing? You're making this thing a whole intellectual thing. This is supposed to be a popular movement. 
And he says, no, no, no. I'm in Lithuania. I'm dealing with serious people here. And I need to show that this movement is not simply Shabtai Tzvi. This isn't a false messianic movement. And so I'm going to show that I can outlearn and that I can be more normative. I can even be more normative than a uh, mitnagid or a yeshiva person. And I can be philosophically just as sophisticated as them as well. And so you're right. What ends up happening, Chabad is the most intellectual of those groups and appeals in some ways less to, uh, to what would be called a prostayid or a, you know, a, a more um, a kind of less philosophically attuned uh, Jewish person. But you have to remember where Chabad emerges. It emerges in Lithuanian lands. It's not emerging in Poland. It's emerging in the heart of Mitnagdic culture. It's emerging in the heart of Mitnagdic culture. Okay, so what I want to now do is turn to the last two texts. And I want to start talking about what are the social and political implications of this. And this is where we're going to begin to see where Hasidism hits a brick wall. Hits a brick wall. So Sarah Foner, I'm going to read to you what Sarah Foner writes the whole whole um, the whole section so you get a feel for what she's describing. So she writes in her memoirs as follows. follows. You have the, the, uh, a little bit of the quote. After these events, the Mitnagdim brought a judge to the city. She's describing 1860s, 1850s, 1860s, Dvinsk. After these uh, uh, events, the Mitnagdim brought a judge to the city and his name was Erpina. Okay, now first of all, Let's understand what just happened. A judge, a dayan, is brought to the city. That costs money. If you're in the 18th century, you have one judge, one sofer, one rabbi. That's what everyone pays for. Now we're in the 1850s, 1860s. Now all of a we got two judges. We've got another judge in the city all of a sudden. They also brought a butcher. Another butcher. Guess what? That costs money. Competition. Not just competition, you can't sell wholesale then. Everybody's getting smaller cuts. That costs money. And established their own slaughterhouse for meat. Thus the feud was rekindled, and as the fire, as a fire will progress and spread to the four corners of the house, if firemen don't labor to extinguish it, so spread the conflicts and divisions in the city. In every house, in every study hall. Now wait one second. In every study hall. How many study halls? What is this every study hall? You lived in 18th century Vilna. No, I'm going to go back for a minute. If you go back to 18th century Vilna, by the end of 18th century Vilna, this is an Irva Aim Biesrol. This is the greatest, a Stadt. This is the biggest city in, uh, in, it's not the biggest city in Lithuanian Jewish life. It's one of the five biggest cities, eight biggest cities. But it, you know, Vilna is Vilna. It's the Jerusalem of Lithuania. There are eight study halls, shuls, religious institutions that a community upkeeps. Okay? There are 4,000 Jews that are living there at that time. By the end of it, let's say there's 10,000. 10,000 Jews by the end of the 18th century, beginning in 19th. There are eight study halls, roughly. Maybe 10, somewhere between 8 and 10. By 18... By the 1860s, we're talking right here, there are 40,000 Jews in Vilna. Okay, so we've had now, if 
from 10,000 up now to 4, we're going from 4,000 to 10,000 to now 40,000. There are over 80 study halls in Vilna. That's a lot of study halls. That's a lot of land. That's a lot of candle wax. That's a lot of books. That's a lot of money for a community. No, who's supporting those study houses? Someone's got to pay the bills. So you've gone from having eight to 80, but you've only moved from, from 10,000 to 40,000. You do the math. So now what we have, we get now fires will progress, they spread divisions in the city. Every study hall, in every store, nothing was heard besides mitnagid, chassid, chassid, mitnagid. At first the women made mistakes, since they didn't know which butcher shop was a misnagid and which one was chassidic. And so they mixed up the products. There were great problems, such as when a man came home from work and sat down to eat. And while eating, asked his wife, where did, you, where did, she, where did she go to get the meat? She told him, Yitzchak Fagin's butcher shop, which was the Hasidic butcher shop. He cried out loudly, Oy vavoy, you fed me unclean meat. Or if a woman brought meat from a butcher shop in the house of Leib Kamaraz, which was the butcher shop of the Mitnagdim. A chassid would be leaping to his feet, crying out, Oy vey, you fed me treif meat. And every night my father, Zichorno Livracha, came home from the house of study, and he would tell my mother that the Shamish had declared that everybody who bought meat that day from Yitzchak Begin's butcher shop had rendered his kitchen utensils unclean. A day didn't pass that the kitchen utensils were made treif, in many homes on both sides. So passed weeks and months with the flames of the conflict spreading from day to day and the hatred on both sides reached a pinnacle. The Mitnagi made preparations to request a new rabbi, but it wasn't lightly that they took this step. It's more money, more money, more rabbis. Because Rabbi Pavel was also a rabbi to their taste. Upon a one time, a woman went to a butcher shop to buy some intestines. But she wasn't sure if maybe she had mixed up the butcher shop. So she asked, tell me please, if these are Hasidish shakishkas or Mitnagdish shakishkas. The butcher grabbed her by the back of the neck and threw her out. But after he wrote in big letters on the door, meet for Mitnagdim here. Around this time, a rich Hasidic mar a woman, mar a rich Hasid, married off his daughter. The wife of Rav Pavel came to the feast with another rich Hasidic woman named Gittel Lieberman, who owned a big liquor business. When the women sat at the table to eat, all the conversation discussion was on the division that was in the city. The wife of the rabbi became assertive and said, The Mitnagdim are truly crazy in their thinking that the Vilnagon was a great man and that over this yelling, they're willing to kill and be killed. I know who he was. She started to curse him, and she was cursing. She raised up her foot and showed the woman her heel and said, My heel is more dear than... She caused Gittel Lieberman to laugh and clap her hands and say, The Rebetzin is entirely correct. He is that. And she added to the filth that cast darts at the Gon and his students. The point being that this very abstract philosophical dispute ended up being the primary ways Jews were constructing their identities and 
giving over resources and spending their monies. What happens by the 1860s is you end up having what's called a crisis of the fork and the knife. This term was a term that was uh, used by one Arnshmur Lieberman. Lieberman was the founder of Jewish socialism, precursor of the Bund. Uh, in the 1870s, he famously went and worked for Peter Lavrov uh, at uh, uh, the first Russian revolutionary journal called Period. And Lieberman came from Vilna, and he described in the 1860s this large-scale crisis of the fork of the knife. But he wasn't the only one. Famously, the most famous debate over trafe chickens and trafe meat was around Moses Lillienblum. Moses Lillienblum was the founder of Zionism the founder of the Chibat Zion movement in 1881. But in the 1870s, first in the 1860s and the 1870s, he was fighting with rabbis who kept on saying that meat was trafe and making people lose money. And he was fighting with, why do we have to have 20 different synagogues? Can't people all just get along? Funds were being wasted. Funds were being lost. Funds are being squandered on various religious debates. And as my friend, what, what, what's her? Uh, uh, anonymous. anonymous said, listen, follow the money on the chumras. Follow the money on the chumras. Someone is making money off of it. With Zion, when Zionism and Jewish socialism emerge, they emerge with one very, very simple premise that they both share. The problem is not with Jewish souls. It's not with Jewish religion. That's not where the problems are. Not if you establish another shtibel, another shul, another study hall. The problem is at the dinner table. The problem is that Jews are poor. The problem is that you have 20 batei medrash, but you don't have any food for the guf. The neshama might be very rich, but the guf is very poor. And so, what ends up happening is Hasidism, Mitnagdism, Maskilism becomes eclipsed by the end of the 19th century by the two major Jewish identity groups, which is Zionism and Jewish Socialism. But, as we all know, it continues on. It continues on with certain groups. But more than that, it gets re-understood and taken up by all kinds of Jews. And I think the way it gets taken up in different ways are in these different philosophical ideas that we explored at the beginning of this talk, and the way they're expressed is in the last two sources that I showed you. What, is a Has what does it mean to live a Hasidic Shabbos? What does it mean to live a Mitnagid Shabbos? If you were to look at, when you just looked at, um, at Ephraim Dinard's uh, description of, of his Shabbos at home, what object features most prominently in that description. Books! The books! The books! Oh, and, so, and look at how much... Right, Wendy pointed this out to me before. And look at how much writing it is. Look at how long. So a book gets open, and did he say this book? Or he studies this book? This one studies that book? This one studies that book? The bookishness. Kanigish culture. That's the way the Russians describe this. Bookish culture of the Lithuanian Jews. And if you were to look at the other text, Yechezko Kotik, what is he stressing? The bottle, the liquor, the food, the dancing. The, a lot of them work. Wait a second. 
That was the only thing Jews could afford. Jews were Jews. Primary, primary economic means, especially in Poland. There's a great book that just came out by my friend Glenn Diner on this, on uh, on the on on the liquor on on Jews and liquor in uh, in the 18th and 19th century. That's what Jews could do. Look, it was horrific. When we talk about an economic crisis, what what basically we got turned into in Poland, Lithuania, is we were forced to be crack dealers. That's what we were forced to do. We basically got people drunk. That's what Jews were. They were basically crack dealers economically. That's what they were forced to be. When you can't own land, we're not allowed to till land. We're not allowed to open up commercial business. And all you're allowed to do is trade, tr- have right, trading rights and selling rights of liquor. That's what you become. You get everybody drunk. That's w- and guess who you're going to hate? You're going to hate that. You're going to hate that person eventually. Yes, questions. There are lots of differences between each of these places. We'll try to get a few that are simple. There's, there's everything down to what they eat are different depending on the place. In, in Lithuania, they, they serve their gefilte fish with pepper. In, in Hasidic areas, in Poland, they serve their gefilte fish with sugar. Just to give you one simple one. Um, what made Lithuania slightly different? I'll give a few, uh, a few I think, important points. So first of all, the residential rights are very different in Congress Poland than they are in Lithuania. Um, and in what's called the Pale of Settlement. When Catherine comes into power, she creates a Pale of Settlement at the end of the 19th century in which Jews are only allowed to live within. Congress Poland is something separate and distinct. It goes under its own kind of uh, jurisdiction. Lithuania, there's a few features that I think make it uh, somewhat different. First of all, the level of study and learning is strongest there. Why is the study and the learning in that area strongest? One could say that. The, the economic situation, for example, in Ukraine, the economic situation in Ukraine is much better than the economic situation. You have wheat. You have crops in, in, uh, in, in Ukraine. You don't have that in, in Lithuania. But what creates, the actual dif- what creates the actual difference that leads to Hasidism here versus Hasidism there? Some people say, I mean, there's a lot of different, some people say it has to do with issues of print. So, for example, the Hasidim, the, the Mitnagdim and the Maskilim in Lithuania, if you look at it geographically also, Lithuania becomes much, if you look at the south, Ukraine, and then you look at where Lita is, Lita becomes closer to Berlin. So if you look at it that way, that's more closer to Western centers of learning, there's also something there to be said. But um, I think that some of it's economic. I think that some of it, uh, I think some of it has to do with, it's just the general, you know, some people would say it's, it was, Vilna itself was a very, had, a, had very strong communal bonds 
that weren't going to be upended quickly by any group coming in. Look, they also are able to stop print in Lithuanian lands. The Hasidim and the, the Mitnagdim and the Maskilim banned are only two printing presses that are allowed to print books in the whole first half of the 19th century in Lithuanian lands. So they begin to control what kinds of messages are put out. Um, but there's no, you know, some of it is, I think also some of it has to do with the force of personality. I, I think that there's something to be said for that the Vilna Gon in Lithuania, in Vilna, had the political backing and the political backing matched his to put his foot down on it. Now, why that held, it also held because as time went on, the Mitnagdim also originally had certain, shared a certain base support with certain Maskilic or Enlightenment groups. And the Enlighteners, of course, hated the Hasidim because they also saw it as irrational. They saw them as anti-modern. They saw them as intolerant. They saw them as wanting to create a coercive system and also anti-Western in terms of Western thought. So I think that this also contributed. But eventually what ends up happening is that the Hasidim and the Mitnagdim very, very quickly, by already, I would say, uh, the 1830s, 1840s, begin a repro, some kind of reproachment in order to fight the masculine, the enlighteners. So by the 1830s, 1840s, as much as these two groups hated each other, and they still had different institutions, they had a much bigger enemy at that point. So originally, Hasidim were both against the Mitnagdim and the nascent Jewish enlightenment. By the end of the century, it kinds of shifts. So why does it end up shifting? You could also say that a place like Lithuania, there's also a strong maskilic element in, in Lithuania that's more present than it is, say, in southern, uh, southern Poland or in the Ukraine. So a place like Vilna, you're going to have people who are reading German literature that are going to be engaged in studying the sciences much more than in other locales. And that's going to create a, 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 a greater um, sense of friction and mobilize certain groups against Hasidism slightly more. But it's also a little bit of a question, why there are not other places? There's an article written on it recently by uh, Shaul Stamfer, wrote this historian. And he actually points to the Shtibels. Wherever there were Shtibels that were able to be created, Hasidism was able to emerge. Wherever there wasn't a shtibel, then there aren't Hasidism. Now, why a shtibel? What does it? There are all kinds of reasons of what could allow it to stand or not. But I don't have a great answer for you on that. Yeah. What's the substance of the difference between Hasidism and Hasidism? Oh, the smooth... You can't... Here's the problem. If you want to have a very sharp knife, the way they would make the knives, it would be very hard to make a sharp knife and a smooth knife. You can make a very sharp knife, but then there'll probably be nicks in the knife, just in terms of the friction created to create the sharpness at the top, right, on the head of the knife. So what it does is it ends up creating scratches. So you could have a sharp knife or a smooth knife, but very difficult to actually have a sharp and a smooth knife. The Hasidim say, if it's not sharp and it's not smooth, 
that's it. Now, the thing is, it's pretty hard to have a sharp and a smooth knife. So what they did was, this was their excuse to be able to usher in a whole different regime, a whole different economic regime. Of course they still do it. Yes. That's a, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So I never found out where that started, and was it the Hasidic Jews that really brought that into favor? Well, I don't know whether or not it was just the Hasidim. That's a good question. I don't know if it was just Has- the first, first people start going like this. Were Hasid- the way he describes it there is the first people that did that is, you know, Adam and Eve are the first people that did that. Well, no, no, that was not the essential, but the other part But that's... Oh, that they started? Oh, no, 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 no. If you actually go back to the Talmud, and the Vilna Gon tries to reinterpret this... Sure. There's all kinds of... Sure, there are all kinds of traditions of that. Okay, so that tradition, they're defending it. Sure. Yeah. But they didn't originate it. No. They weren't the first to say, hey, I'm going to scream out to God, or... Moving my body around this way. I no. doubt they were the first to originate that one. Yeah. Okay. But whether or not that became a defining feature of a movement, I think that was... That yeah, so. that may be so. Yes? I don't really fully accept what's happening, but I'm really wondering, what's the difference with the women doing well on the one hand, the guys doing well, and on the other hand, the guys with the book? Did those ladies' Shabbos afternoons look more alike than the men's do? So what is Sarah? I'm trying to think. You know, I'll tell you something interesting. So Sarah Foner has another uh, short essay. I forget what it's called in Hebrew. It's very interesting. Sarah Foner also was, was a Zionist her whole life as well. I forget what it's called in Hebrew. But in English it got translated into Can a Woman Be a Gone? It's actually a very moving story. And she talks about... It's, a, it's, it's sad. It's, it, but I mean... It, it's good to talk about that. Talk about that here. But she has a story where she she grew up hearing about being a gone and being a gone and a gone and a gone. All these people are gones and gones and gones. So she tells her father around her friends, "I want to be a gone," and they both start chuckling at her, her father and her friend. And she remembers she was so humiliated. She didn't know what was so funny, but she said. And it's a very moving. It's a very moving story. I think it's even online. Um, you can find it. But can a woman be a gone? So there certainly was. Now, interestingly enough, um, I actually just read this piece with my mom a couple of days ago. Uh, we were reading a uh, an analysis of Lithuanian life in the 1860s by Moses Lillian Bloom, writing in a Yiddish newspaper called Kol Mavasa, and he describes all the different shiduchim all the different ways in which people get married, the politics and economics of Shidduchim. And he actually talks about the incredible imbalances between men and women by the 1860s and 1870s in Lithuanian, specifically Lithuanian mitnagdic life. And he says that it was typical for, there to, for the women to be much more well-educated than the men were. Because, and this is, the, this is the way he says it is so hysterical. He says, there's no problem for a woman 
to become educated in secular subjects. She wouldn't learn Gemara. Oh, no way would she learn Gemara. That's not possible. But secular subjects, she could. So Lillian Bloom says there, what do you mean secular subjects she could? Aren't you afraid that she'd become an apikores? So then he says, an apikores? Thus hasten apikores. A woman doesn't have seichel. How can she become an apikores? In other words, that's what he's explaining is the logic of this society. But what would it end up producing? It produced all kinds of marriages. At that point, though, that knowledge was becoming much more privileged than Talmudic knowledge was. And so by the 1870s, you would have marriages in which the woman was actually more privileged and, and was gaining more, more status in society because of her knowledge than the men who knew how to say a couple uh, shetlach in, in, in a Gemara, which was beginning to become less and less important. Well, that's a different, that's a different. There's also the tra- trashy French novel stuff, but there's, yeah, but there's other stuff that they were learning. Yeah. That's right. Okay, so what ends up happening is exactly the two movements as time goes on become more and more similar or parts of it end up becoming identified with moving over to the Haskalah and then eventually into Zionism and into Socialism. But here's what's important. This trait, the, the switch that goes on is as follows. The Mitnagdim largely take on the idea of a Rebbe. In other words, your Rosh Hashiva, you wouldn't ask questions about do I marry a girl, not marry a girl, how do I tie my shoe, do I not tie my shoe, do I take this job, not take... You'd ask your Rosh Hashiva, maybe a halachic question or a question in learning. Mitnagdim took on their idea of a Rebbe, but the Hasidim shifted and began adopting the Yeshiva. And so what the yeshiva ended up becoming was, Hasidim, let's say, Congress Poland. There were no yeshiva in Congress Poland until deep into the 20th century. Okay? But what ends up happening eventually is the institutional structure remains mitnagdic in that it becomes the yeshiva. But the relationship that people have to authority becomes Hasidic because they end up associating the rabbi with also a personal role, a pastoral role in their, in their own lives. So that's the, the way in which conceptually moves closer and closer together. Uh, all right, on that note, if there are any other, any other questions, we're at four o'clock. Thank you very much.